0: Suddenly, we see you know, curtains of enemy fire originating from 360 degrees around the, the valley. This includes you know, high grounds from the mountains. And also, it, you know, we have heavy machine gun fire coming from inside of Pakistan. Um, and it, it was truly you know, bullets flying from every, every angle that, that you could see. Uh, you know, I had never seen anything like it before. At that point, um, our instincts kicked in, and it was, I don't think we really, we weren't thinking really, we just acted, because that's all we knew to do. You know, anywhere we saw enemy fire originating from, we shot back.
1: Hey, welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I sat down to talk to Captain Lindsay Heisler. She is an Apache helicopter pilot, and on December 5th, 2015, she was a platoon leader in 1st Battalion, 101st Aviation Regiment, and had been deployed in Afghanistan for several months. That night, her aircraft and another were given a mission that the pilots had done a number of times before, provide security for a ground force. But that night would turn out to be unlike previous missions. When the ground force began taking enemy fire from all sides, the Apaches above had to take action. In fact, because of her actions that night, Captain Heiser received the Distinguished Flying Cross. It is an incredible story, but before we get to it, as always, just a few quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you'd take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. Second, Captain Heister was at West Point to receive the 2019 Alexander Nininger Award for Valor at Arms. That award is given annually to somebody selected jointly by the U.S. Military Academy and the West Point Association of Graduates. We have featured stories by past Nininger Award recipients on the Spear and once again want to send a sincere thank you to the Association of Graduates for helping to make this episode happen. And finally, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Captain Lindsay Heisler. My guest on this episode of The Spears is Captain Lindsay Heisler. Uh, she is a 2012 graduate of yes. West Point. Mm-hmm. And first of all, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, and you're here back at West Point to, uh, to receive an award, the Niniger Award, which is an mm. award uh, for Valor at Arms that is sponsored by the Association of Graduates. So first of all, thanks for taking some time to talk to us.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it.
1: So you are a 2012 grad of West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the story that you're gonna tell, um, can you kind of talk about what drew you to West Point in the first place? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I actually, uh, I think the way I got here was a little different from how a lot of people get here. Um, I didn't have you know, aspirations growing up at a young age to, to join the military. Uh, what I did do my my entire life was play soccer. And so I, you know, on my club team, we would go to recruiting tournaments. And uh, after one weekend, my parents got an email from the coach from West Point asking if I wanted to come visit and, and potentially play here. Uh, so I went, I came up here for two weekends um, and saw, you know, shadowed a cadet through uh, all the classes they went to and the practices and the games and, and things like that. And I think after those two weekends, I kind of realized that West Point was an opportunity that I didn't want to pass up. Um, and if I, if I didn't take this opportunity, I would always look back on it, wondering what if, um, so I think it was, it was soccer that honestly got me here and then once I got here, it was, you know, the army that kept me here.
1: So four years at West Point, I get to branch night and you are told you're going to be an aviation officer. Mm -hmm. Is that what you wanted to do?
0: It was. Yeah. It was my first choice.
1: It's pretty competitive.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think yuck is when I really started considering, you know, what branch I wanted to branch. And I realized that, you know, I think aviation, and again, I, I didn't know much about the Army at the time, but it seemed, you know, who w- who would not want to fly helicopters, you know? So I think uh, knowing that or thinking that at the time, it really pushed me to, to try for aviation, and then I haven't regretted any of it since, so I loved it.
1: So then where'd you go when you left West Point?
0: I went to Fort Rucker first. Uh, that's where we have our... Flight school, um, for about a year and a half, I was there. And then, uh, I PCS from there to Fort Campbell in uh, Kentucky for my platoon later time.
1: Okay. And what did you fly?
0: I fly Apache helicopters.
1: Is that what you wanted to fly? Yes. Okay. So you're now a Lieutenant and an Apache pilot. Um, and in 2015 you were deployed, was that your first deployment? That was
0: my first deployment. Okay.
1: So Mm -hmm. when did you, when, when and where did you go?
0: Uh, so, in April 2015, we deployed for nine months to Bagram, Afghanistan. We left January of
1: 2016. Okay. Um, so, let's talk about that deployment. How was it?
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think that was definitely one of the highlights of my career. Uh, you know, every, everyone who joins the Army, you know, you train and garrison in the Garrison environment for so many years, and you know, so many different training exercises, everybody wants the opportunity to deploy and actually, you know, do your job. You know that you joined the army to do.
1: And what unit were you with?
0: I was with First uh, Battalion, 101st Aviation Regiment. Okay, um, so specifically Alpha Company.
1: Okay, what uh, what was the mission, like during the deployment?
0: Our mission was to uh, <clears throat> you know provide ground support for the the ground forces that were there at the time. And then at, the, at that point in time, you know, it, it was the counterinsurgency mission. So it was allowing the, the ground force to, you know, uh, conduct their missions with their partners in Afghanistan as well, um, so that, you know, whenever we left that country, they would be able to defend their country again the, against the terrorists at that time.
1: Okay. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what day was it? The event that we're going to talk about?
0: Uh, December fifth, two thousand fifteen. Two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. How
1: long have you been in country by this time?
0: At that point, it was eight months. Okay.
1: So you've gotten into kind of a battle rhythm. You kind of know what you're what you're doing. Um, you've got, I guess, I presume, kind of a level of comfort with that. Um, yep. And what happened that day?
0: Yeah. So we we got notification that there is a a high value target had been identified in uh, southeastern Afghanistan, um, in Paktika province.
1: And you were at Bagram? I was at Bagram, okay. yes.
0: Uh, so it was about a 45-minute flight from Bagram to where this high-valley target was. Uh, and, you know, this was just another mission that we had done for the previous eight months. It, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I think the only thing that, that stuck out in our minds was it was right along the border to Pakistan, towards the east. Other than that, you know, it was, it was truly just what we had you know, gotten used to doing in the previous eight months. So, um, once we got told that there is a high value target uh, <clears throat> in that target building, we, we took off shortly after. It was uh, two of my Apaches and then uh, four Chinooks from the 160th, and we escorted them um, to go infill the ground force to this target building.
1: So they had the Chinooks were carrying a ground force. Correct. Okay. Yes. And you guys were essentially on an escort mission with Yeah. Them. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, so they successfully infilled the ground force. Um, and then we stayed overhead to provide fall on, uh, air support to the ground force. Um, the Chinooks left to go essentially wait for the call to, to come pick them up. Okay. So we were overhead, um, close to six hours. By the time they called for for exfil
1: how long can an apache stay stay up
0: Mm, so typically it's about three hours of Uh station time before we have to leave go refuel and come back
1: okay so you had done that correct did you Mm -hmm. have to go all the way back to barroom to refuel
0: no we we refueled at uh fab chapman which is in coast Mm -hmm. so that's probably about 20 minutes or something like that so it was a lot closer
1: okay what's it like when you're so you're just up sort of circling Above them at that time.
0: Yeah, essentially. How Um, high? It'll be anywhere from about 500 feet above the ground to 1,500 feet. How connected? In that window.
1: How connected to the ground force do you feel? Um, You know, can you see them down below? Do you feel Mm -hmm. like kind of an an, an integral part of this mission, or do you kind of feel like, no, we're just a separate thing that they'll call if they need?
0: Yeah, we're we're absolutely right there with them. Um, Our job is to know where the friendlies are at all times, and that way we can essentially watch their six, you know, uh, so the first thing we, we do once we get on station anywhere is ask for the friendly location and we get eyes on them, you know, ensure that we are visual, their location, and that way we can provide air support in the event they need it because we, ideally our situational awareness should match their situational awareness.
1: Okay. So are you in pretty constant contact with the ground force?
0: Yeah, 100% all the time we're in, we're in communication with them.
1: So you're talking to them, you're kind of circling up. Um, on one hand, you're waiting in case they need something, right? But what else are you doing up there?
0: We're, we're looking ahead of them. We're scanning, you know, where they're going, where mm. they're going to be. And that way we can give them a heads up on what they might encounter or what we're seeing because we have a different vantage point being up yeah. high. We can see a lot more than they can. Sure. So they'll they'll have us, you know, oftentimes it's one sensor. From one of the Apaches uh, in a defensive posture around the ground force, and then the other one is more offensive, looking you know maybe a K in front of them to see what they might encounter.
1: Had you worked with this team before?
0: This particular team, yes, we had. Okay. Does mm-hmm.
1: that help? Does it change? I mean, is that do you get better? Uh, does that sort of synchronization get better the more you've worked with a particular ground force?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, is, even with the the crews for the Chinooks from the 160th, you know, we we saw them every time we flew, so. We we knew them personally at that point, and uh, it allowed us to develop a relationship. And you know, once you work together for eight months, you're gonna you're gonna know what to expect from from each team. Yeah. You know, so um, I think that was actually a great point for, or a great thing to have for that mission.
1: Sure. Uh, okay. So what happens next?
0: Um. So probably about two hours after uh, we dropped the ground force off, we identified a uh, enemy fighting position towards the, uh, the west of the, of the target building. Um, this was, you know, on the base of the mountains that were, we had, we had mountains surrounding this target building, you know, to the north, to the west and to the south, uh, in this valley and then towards the east into Pakistan was open desert. So essentially we were surrounded by high ground okay. and the ground force was, which puts them in a kind of a precarious sure. spot. Um, so we identified this enemy fighting position towards the West. Uh, it looks like they were observing the friendlies from where they were. Um, we, we let the ground force know, and then they immediately essentially gave us clearance to engage. Um, so we engaged this fighting position. Um, and and that, that's just the, the start of the, the night, you know, I think that typically happens pretty often throughout the deployment, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so that was just the first engagement of the night and it, it wasn't to anything that was too out of the ordinary so this for is what all happening expect. at night correct yes
1: mm-hmm. so th- this is really interesting to me because obviously you've got uh afghan fighters who know that they're overmatched in terms of technology firepower um and for the most part in terms of night vision uh you can see them clearly what, mm-hmm. what, did, what are sort of the 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 telltale marks of of a, a, an enemy fighting position. What does it look like from, from your vantage point?
0: Yeah. Uh, so obviously, you know, our friendly forces will be in uniforms that we recognize they'll have equipment that looks like sophisticated equipment. The, the ground force, they look completely, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the enemy force, they'll look completely different, um, because of what they wear. Uh, and then they don't have the equipment that, that we do. Like you said, they don't have. The ability to see at night, whereas you know our friendly forces have night vision goggles and and all sorts of equipment like that. So it, it's
1: so you can see the weapons, though. Yes. How yes. close do you have to be to kind of positively ID, like and know for sure that this is actually you know a bunch of fighters, not some shepherds out camping on the hillside.
0: For a small weapon like a AK forty seven, you know that they or an RPG, which they often had, probably within three kilometers is where you. I, ideally, you want to be inside of two kilometers, but you know you can probably PID a weapon like that at, at night, you know, two to three K.
1: Okay. But they can hear you from that far away, yes, right? Yes, they can hear us. Um, mm-hmm. Did you notice, I mean, was it, did they typically, once they could hear the sound of your aircraft coming in, did they just sort of pop smoke because they don't want anything to do with that? Or did they, were they confident that you weren't going to see them?
0: They know that they know what a Chinook sounds like. They know what Apaches sound like. Terrorists are smart. You yeah. know, they've adapted over 15 years. At that point in time, it had been, you know, almost 15 years of conflict. Mm-hmm. So they they absolutely picked up on, you know, Chinooks flew inbound, dropped off the of ground force, and then the rotors that, or the rotor noise that they could hear after the Chinooks left were Apaches. So mm-hmm. they knew that they were there. I think they probably thought that we couldn't see them. Okay. Um, because they were focused on the ground force. They didn't really they weren't really looking at us. They sure. knew that they knew that we were there because they could hear us. Sure. But, um, I don't think they, they thought that we were. Really they clearly weren't
1: afraid enough to, to leave. To right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so you let the ground force, uh, know that these guys are there and then what happens?
0: So after that, uh, they give us clearance to fire. We both Apaches overhead, we engage them with 30 millimeter that we have on board. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: what do you, what is it? What do you typically, what's the armament look like on an Apache? Mm -hmm. Typically you've got the 30 millimeter cannon.
0: Yep. We have the 30 millimeter. Then we have rockets Mm -hmm. and we have hellfire missiles.
1: Okay. So you engage with the 30 millimeter. Correct. Mm -hmm. And then what?
0: Um, after that, you know, the, the ground force continued on with their mission at the target building that they're at, and we continue to just provide air support for them. So that, you know, that was just a quick engagement that happened prior to, uh, the rest of the mission that, you know, where everything kind of went crazy. So let's talk um, about that. When did yeah. this go crazy? That happened. So it was getting close to sunrise and, um, it's more advantageous. Like we've talked about for us to fly at night sure. and for the ground force to operate at night. So the ground force commander called for exfil of his forces back to the FOB and, uh, so at this point we have the ground force in PZ posture, which is where, you know, they set up close to where the Chinooks are going to land in a defensive position so that they can minimize the amount of time that the Chinooks will be, you know, essentially sitting ducks on the ground. Sure. Uh, While they're in PZ posture, they started taking indirect fire from in some location to the north. They didn't really know where. Um, So after we heard that or after they told us that they were receiving indirect fire, uh, we immediately shifted our sensors to the north to you know begin scanning for targets up there i I identified a enemy fighting position um, a six-man team um, concealed by the tree line that was you know on the base of the the mountains that were up to the north.
1: How far away is this from where they're waiting for the Chinooks?
0: this was probably about two kilometers maybe okay. one to two kilometers okay. somewhere in there um, and we immediately got clearance to engage
1: was this where the the was it rockets or, or mortars this
0: was the for the enemy
1: yeah the the indirect fire that was coming in is this where it was coming in from correct okay yes
0: uh so we Im- immediately engaged them after they gave us clearance of fire um and that essentially cleared the the valley for the chinooks to come inbound for uh exfil of the ground force okay um <clears throat> So the, the Chinooks are inbound uh, probably within a minute out of landing. We're still overhead conducting security for the ground force that's, you know, vulnerable in their defensive posture. And then once the Chinooks are, you know, seconds out from landing, suddenly we see, you know, curtains of enemy fire originating from three hundred and sixty degrees around the the valley. Um, <clears throat> this includes, you know, high ground from the mountains and also it, You know, we have heavy machine gun fire coming from clot structures on the east side of the the border from inside of Pakistan. Um, And it it was truly, you know, bullets flying from every every angle that that you could see. Uh, You know, I had never seen anything like it before. I know none of the pilots who were there had seen anything like it before. Um,
1: What did it look like?
0: (laughs) It looks, I, I picture you know, in, like, Star Wars, where you have, you picture, like, laser beams, sure. you know? Um, it, it looks like that. You know, under your, your night vision goggles, it, it really accentuates any any light that you see. Sure. And so there were are, are tracers of enemy fire everywhere. Yeah.
1: All direct fire.
0: Correct. Yep. Okay. All direct fire. So what do you do? At that point, um, our instincts kicked in, and it was, I don't think we really thought, we weren't thinking really we just acted because that's all we knew to do you know anywhere we saw enemy fire originating from we shot back because that's what our training told us to do we knew that we were there to make sure that the ground forest and the chinooks got out of there safely so I don't remember thinking a lot you know we just we were just pulling the trigger because that's that's what we knew that we had to do to make sure that they got out of there
1: what are you firing? The 30 millimeter? 30 there? millimeter, um, yeah. Can you kind of, you know, to the extent that maybe it's possible for, for listeners, can you kind of try to situate yourself there? You said it's kind of coming from 360 degrees. Are you in the center of this circle? Are you considerably higher than all these guys? If some of them are firing from up on the mountains, are some of mm-hmm. them up close to your height?
0: I think, so the, the highest point that the fire was coming from was probably – uh, probably just slightly lower than where we were. Okay. So higher than the ground force, higher than the Chinooks on the ground, but a little bit lower than what we were. Um, and we were, you know, doing circles around the, the Chinooks on the ground and the, the ground force. Um, so we were pretty, we were in the middle of it. Um, and any, anywhere we saw fire from we flew to that direction to draw Fired to our Apaches rather than the ground force on the ground. And then it's still dark back. at this time. Yes. It's still dark
1: is, um, and there's, it's you, but there's also another Apache, right? Correct. Yep. How much coordination is there between the two of you? Hey, you know, letting each other know where you see fire coming from, who's going to take it, are, are you constantly talking or is it just sort of, have you guys worked with this, uh, these other pilots mm-hmm. so often that you just kind of work well together? What does it look like?
0: Yeah, I think. During the entire mission, you know, we're constantly communicating, um, when that incident happened, when the Chinooks finally came inbound to pick the ground force up, I think our instincts kicked on and we knew that we're kind of in a, you know, survival mode at that point. Um, so we have this saying called aviate, navigate, communicate, essentially meaning you fly your aircraft first, make sure that you're not going to crash or that you engage the enemy where they need to be engaged, um, and then you navigate, you figure out where you need to go second, and then you communicate third. So that night, especially well, after the Chinooks were on the ground pinned down by enemy fire with the ground force, we knew that first and foremost we had to aviate and protect our aircraft on the ground and the ground force inside of them. So we more so than communicated with each other, we just shot at any enemy that we could identify on the ground. Um, we we knew that we weren't going to have a midair between us because we were deconflicted by a predetermined altitude. Oh really? So yeah, so we had you know 300 feet of separation between us at all times.
1: Are you higher or lower? Is your is your aircraft?
0: I was I was a higher bird. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, that's what I was going to say. Is this seems like it's you know it's a big space, but it's not that big and, and, right. and the patches mm-hmm. are, are pretty big. That yeah. would be the concern. I think that you'd have a midair collision, right?
0: Yeah. Um, and so anytime we, we plan a mission or we go through our team briefs prior to taking off, we always brief, you know, I'm going to be at 500 feet, you're going to be at a thousand feet. Okay. And, and that way we always know that if something crazy happens, at least we know that we're not going to hit each other because we've talked about this in sure. advance.
1: Um, so this, when everything kind of lights up and as you said, goes, everyone crazy, were the Chinooks on the ground yet?
0: They were within 20 seconds from hitting the ground.
1: So did they still land when that happened?
0: They still landed. Uh, the ground force still got picked up by the Chinooks. Um, we had to make sure that we kept the enemy's heads down because, you know, Chinooks are huge aircraft. They're bigger, a lot bigger than the Apache. And there's multiple of them, so they're big targets. So we had to make sure that we kept the enemy's heads down so that the ground force had enough time to get in there and then the Chinooks had enough time to take off.
1: So who through, when all this is happening, you said that there's some coordination between you, the two Apaches. Are you also talking to the ground force? Yes. Are you also mm-hmm. talking to the Chinooks? Yes. And are you also talking to higher headquarters?
0: Uh, we could talk to higher headquarters at that point, but... Um, we weren't at that time because they, they knew what our mission was. Um, at once we leave the, the fob, typically it's, it's our mission at that, sure. at that point. It's our fight. Okay. So we weren't talking to them as this was happening. But
1: happening. even these three kind of parallel conversations with the Chinooks, with the ground force, mm-hmm. and with each other, is that, do you, do you ever feel overwhelmed?
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely can be overwhelming. Um, and I think at this particular instance, when we started hearing from the Chinooks said they were taking rounds and sustaining battle damage, and when we heard from our wingman that they also thought that they took rounds because they were having hydraulic issues in the aircraft, uh, at that point it did get overwhelming in the sense that we didn't know if everybody was going to make it out of there. Um, so our response, you know, we just did the only thing we knew how to do, and that was to shoot back at the
1: enemy. Um, what does it feel like when when you see you see a weapon system open up? So you fly there to try to track their fire and to return fire. Um, are you are you aware of whether or not you're you're hitting them, whether or not you're quieting one of the firing positions, or are you just is it a quick gun run and then on to the next thing and not really looking back?
0: It was it was very quick because of. The amount of fire that was in that valley, we couldn't confirm whether or not we had good effects on the target. We just suppressed that location, engaged the enemy, saw that they that the fire stops from that point, and then moved on to the next one. So we never verified, you know, how many enemy there truly were. Uh, we just knew that they appeared to be everywhere in that valley, um, and so it, it was very quick.
1: Has there been an estimate of how many? How many enemy fighters there were involved?
0: So, yes. So after we landed, uh, we had the capability to rewatch our tape. Um, and so we had an ISR aircraft overhead, at you know, several thousand feet above us, um, that night. And from that altitude, you have a picture of the entire valley. So the crew of that aircraft said that they identified eight Dishka fighting positions that night. Um, and so, and we didn't realize it at the time because they hid their heavy machine guns very well from us. Um, but once they knew that the Chinooks were inbound and they heard the, the rotor systems, you know, they get all their heavy machine guns ready, hoping to, to shoot down a Chinook. So, uh, that that's the estimate that we got from the ISR aircraft overhead after the, uh, the mission.
1: And from the time that it all kicked off until, um, you guys essentially leave, was how long total?
0: Yeah, so that'll happen probably under three minutes. Yeah.
1: Did it feel like three minutes?
0: It it felt a lot longer just because we knew that some people had the, that there was a chance that not everybody would make it back that night um, just because of the amount of enemy firepower. And I guess when you have that thought, or when I had that thought in my mind at that time, it, it kind of slowed every everything down. You're hoping that and you're hoping and praying that no, nobody comes over the radio saying that, you know, people have been shot and, and things like that. So I think that knowing that people might not make it, it definitely slowed everything down and made it seem like a lot longer than three minutes.
1: Is it, um, it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, that, that sense of responsibility. Did you, Do you feel that in the moment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially knowing the, the people you work with, and honestly, it's, it's ingrained in you from the time you first fly an Apache, you know, your mission is to protect the ground force that you're flying with. So from day one, you know, that your job is to make sure that the ground force gets out of there alive.
1: So how does an engagement like this end? Um, you kind of talked about how it started, um, mm-hmm. but you get word from the schnooks that said, Hey, we're clear. And then, and then what happens? Do you guys just. Get out of there as quick as possible.
0: Once the ground force were all inside of the chinooks, they left as soon as they could. so once we kept the or kept the enemy's heads down long enough for them to have a window and the ground force you know were all inside of the chinooks. they took off out of there as quickly as they could and then we followed them out so we we didn't stay behind to see you know or confirm or deny. Uh, you know, engagements that we had, we just left with them because they knew that they had to get out of there.
1: You, so you're essentially going to then escort them back. Mm-hmm. Did you yes. go back to Bagram?
0: We went back to coast, FOB Chapman, mm-hmm. because all of our aircraft took damage, or most of them did. Um, so we we landed at the nearest FOB, and that way we could assess the damage before we left back to Bagram.
1: How far is, is Chapman from this engagement area?
0: It's probably about 20-minute flight.
1: So you talked about the adrenaline um, mm-hmm. which I can't imagine uh, that you must be feeling at that time. When do you come down from that? Do you come down the moment that you sort of get clear of that area or is it not till you're on the ground?
0: It wasn't until we, we were on the ground because we still had the possibility that, you know, if an aircraft took enough battle damage to where their rotor systems had problems back in route, they might crash there. So once we've all landed on the ground safely, I think that's when we finally knew that we were okay
1: if you had told uh yourself in 2012 when you were commissioning going to become an aviation officer um that you were going to face something like this obviously you you hadn't undergone any of the aviation training yet so you wouldn't have felt like you would have been prepared but if you asked Mm -hmm. yourself that sort of once a year was there any point in your career where where if somebody said hey right now you're going to go up on a mission you're going to face this would you have felt ready for it
0: That's a good question. Yeah. Um, Yes. And I say that because we were confident in our training, in our preparation leading up to the deployment and the number of times that we had flown that aircraft prior to that night. I think, yes, we we would have confidently said um, we can employ this Apache how it's supposed to and take the fight to the enemies of the United States
1: which says something about army training then if right if i mean because that's the goal it's um to never you know they say the idea behind training is that you never put somebody a soldier in a in a in a situation that they haven't faced before or haven't felt like they've faced before um so that's good especially when you're talking about big complicated machines like uh like the apache um can, can i add
0: something yeah. um so i for army training, I think it's not maybe not everybody can feel that way when they, um, when they get charged with you know a job or a duty they might not feel prepared, but I think that's that's your job as a leader, right? It's as if you're a platoon leader, which I know a lot of the first seeds are about to be. Um, it's their job to make sure that their platoon is prepared for something like that, or you know further on down the line, if you're a company commander, it's your job to make sure that your company is prepared, you know, so that if they're asked that question, are you ready for this? They, they can confidently say, yes, we're ready.
1: So it's a, it's a training thing that made you feel confident, but also it sounds like a leadership thing, like your yes. leaders must've mm-hmm. done, yeah. taken the right steps and done the right things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you fly back to coast, uh, to coast and, and then how long are you there before you go back to bar room?
0: We stayed the night there. You did? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Because, um, we had reports to write up for that mission we had to assess the battle damage on our aircraft and... At that point, um, it was probably seven in the morning, which is, uh, beyond the number of hours that we're, we're supposed to be working to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we stayed there the night and then left for Bogom the next day.
1: And when did you, when was your next mission? How, like, what was your battle rhythm during the course of the deployment? Are you going out daily or are you going out, you know, every third day?
0: Within the company, we were going out daily. That doesn't necessarily mean that. Like me and myself would go out there every night, but out of a seven day week, I'd probably fly six to five to six times during a week. So do you remember maybe the, every the,
1: night? do you remember the very next time that you went out?
0: No, I don't. Really? I can't say I do actually.
1: Um, did it change? I mean, did you feel differently like each time after that, that you got into an aircraft, like maybe more confident or maybe a little bit kind of sobered by the reality of, of what mm-hmm. can happen anytime you, you, you get up in the air?
0: Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. I think because everybody made it back safely. Uh you know, we we felt confident that we could do what we needed to do in the event that we had to do our job like that. Um but at the same time, you know, we were this close to losing somebody, so um it was a very humbling experience, you know. We it had been 8 months at that point in time without um any aircraft incidents, you know, but we were this close to to having one or losing someone on the ground. Uh, so it, it was very humbling.
1: And the rest of the deployment you were there for about another, just in another, another month. month or so? Um, yeah. and the rest of the deployment went smoothly? It did. Yeah. Nothing at least mm-hmm. of, of this magnitude.
0: Yeah. No, nothing of that magnitude.
1: Um, do you think back about it very often?
0: I, I think we did after like in the, uh, in the month after maybe. Uh, a couple months after, but since then, you know, I don't think we think about it too often because at the end of the day, we we're just doing our job, you know, that we're supposed to do. So we, we consider it, you know, we were out there to do our job and luckily we were able to do it that day or that night. And so I, you talk to me or or the team that was with me that night and we don't think that we did anything heroic or anything. We just did our job, you know, so I, I don't think, we dwell on it, or we've talked about it a lot since then.
1: Did you talk to the uh, Chinook aircrew and the ground force afterwards?
0: We did, yeah. The, the next, I think it was the next few days, um, we watched the, the tapes of the videos together, and that's when the, the crew of the ISR aircraft overhead at that time said that there were eight uh, disco fighting positions that they had identified after watching the tape. So it actually took probably a few days before we realized the amount of firepower that was actually out there.
1: Why do you watch the tape? What's the, like, what are you trying to get from it when you watch it?
0: You learn something every time you watch a tape. Um, We we do it after almost every mission. You know, we we go back with the entire team, debrief uh, with the tape in front of us, see what we could have done better, what we did well. Uh, So it, it was a routine, you know, and you learn something every time you do it. So that's why we did it.
1: Sure. Well, Captain Heiser, thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's a it's a great story, and I think uh, I think listeners will really enjoy uh, enjoy hearing it. So, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Hey, thanks again for listening to The Spear. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.